the Theonauts, episode 61. The one where we supersize the ego and deify the imago. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theo egomaniacs. How's it going out there? I'm David Gaddy. I'm Brendan Taylor. And together we are the Theo Knots. Yes, we have guest host in the virtual studio, Brendan Taylor from Finding Christ in Cinema. I don't have the applause button or anything, but. (laughs) Oh, well, I was I was raising the roof for no reason. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Brendan. Well, hello, David. (laughs) Nice to be here. (laughs) So once again, we're filling in for our good pal, Jeremiah. And I have a sneaky feeling we're going to hear from him before the show. Not again. Before the show is over. <laughs> he has he has a way of sneaking into the show even when he's not at the show. That's right. That's right. That's is a crafty podcaster right there. That's right. He's crafty he, producer. <laughs> he's making sure that he is is not forgotten. Now, oh, how could we forget? Yes. So now uh, you just finished a, uh, a a real busy couple of weeks, didn't you? Yes. So what, yes. what was going on in your life? Uh, well, I was directing a children's play, uh, directing a, a little play called Twain's Tales, mm-hmm. uh, based on six different stories from uh, Mark Twain's imagination. And uh, we just finished that up. And I... Right now, I've got so much free time, I don't know what to do with, <laughs> you know, but I did, toward, toward the end there, you know, I would spend, I, I would get to the theater at like four in the afternoon and then not leave until, well, until 10 o'clock that night or 11 o'clock that night, just, you know, making sure all the ducks were in a row. Wow. So, and, uh, but it was fun though. So you're, you're, you're basically, um, did you just direct this one? Oh, yeah. Well, directed, produced. Uh, if we want to get technical about it, help build the set. Uh, <laughs> You're the best boy. The, the, the what? The best boy also. What's the, the, all these technical terms. For, oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Like the grip. The, the, the key grip. <laughs> yes, the key. The, key, <laughs> uh, the gopher. <laughs> yeah, well, just all these things. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's what I want to do in my life. So, you know, I... I, I should have no problem doing it, right? Right. <laughs> right? So, but no, like I said, it was fun. Uh, it's something I've always wanted to do just to make sure that, uh, you know, what I was doing was was really following what I think is God's plan for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being a storyteller and getting his message out that way. Well, so I think I, I I think it worked. I hope it works. I guess. Well, you, sometimes we don't see the fruit <laughs> of the seeds we plant. So, well, you've got good uh, good uh, examples to follow there. I mean, Jesus was a storyteller. 
I mean, that's right. He was. He, I mean, he always he always turned to parables. Yes, exactly. That's what's so great about him. Yes, and 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 of course you have all the the ancients in the Jewish tradition. They, I mean, they all leaned on on story and and that sort of thing to make this the to make the message to tell the message. So yeah. I, I think it's noble. I, I, and it sounds really fun. <laughs> it is pretty fun. Now, when you have kids that don't listen, and you got to turn into, uh, you know, you got to lay down the law. Yeah, yeah. You get vicious. You get vicious. <laughs> okay, so you're you, you you are actor, playwright, director, key grip, all of the above, right? For that show, I was yeah. <laughs> really, really for whatever the product or whatever whatever is asked of me, I try to fulfill that role. Awesome. So, so uh, ideally, I'd like to be like an actor director of like we've we've got so many examples. Nowadays, you know, all these actors will say, "Oh, well, I want to be a director because I've never been a director before." Like John Favreau, uh, you know, just but but John Favreau can actually do it. Yeah, he's he's an actual he's one good shining example. So I don't know. I'm still figuring out life. How about you, David? Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'm still figuring out life, and I've been at it, a, you know, about twice as long as you have, I guess. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, hey, you know whatever. It's uh, life is is it's a it's all about um, you know the choices you make, and some of those are bad, some of them are good. But you uh, but you live it to serve Christ, and that's part of what we're going to be talking about today is what makes life life. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about some news. And now the news. I don't have a super large amount of news to talk about, but there's one uh, story that, that came out yesterday that I thought would be interesting to bring up and talk about, <clears throat> and that is coming from uh, the Huffington Post. Satanic Temple unveils Baphomet sculpture in Detroit. Woo! <laughs> Yes, a satanic organization <laughs> unveiled a controversial bronze Baphomet sculpture in Detroit just before midnight on Saturday after trying in vain to have it installed near a Ten Commandments monument in Oklahoma. Due to planned demonstrations, the group, which is opposed to Bible-themed displays on government land, kept the location of the unveiling of its nine-foot-tall monument secret until the last moment. Then it emailed the information to ticket holders. <laughs> so the Satanic Temple is putting up a huge statue of Baphomet out there in downtown Detroit. What do you, take, what do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, kind of like what I just said. Woo! <laughs> Uh, well, okay, just okay. One thing, uh, I really think, like, like they were selling tickets. Yes, they were selling tickets. Yes. Okay, so the Satanic Temple was making money off of this. They were making money, and that's all it is. It's all it's. It was just all one big money making gimmick. Mm -hmm. And, however, it does. I, for it calls the church for a lot of things, and one thing I think it definitely calls us for is 
to make sure that we are we are solid in our understanding of of why we have so many quote graven images in government spaces. Ooh, yes. You See? know, because um, <clears throat> it maybe <clears throat> maybe the maybe the American church has gotten to a point where we we decide to put such things in certain places flippantly. Uh-huh. And and without much without much thought and I, this 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 is just somebody else doing what we're doing really. Right. Except obviously, obviously it's a different it's a different god. Well, and this is this is foreshadowing of an episode we're going to have uh here in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Nimrod and and some of the echoes of of his influence on the world and uh mm-hmm. and these things that you just mentioned about why we have all these graven images all over the place is going to come into play there i don't know if you know this just a a little snippet but when you walk into the capitol building and you look up there's a big mural in the rotunda that's right there is and it's in in that that mural is called the apotho let me get this right the apotheosis of washington so uh, that apotheosis yeah. means the yes. deification of, <laughs> and it's this portrait of Washington sitting on a Greek throne, wearing a yes, toga, surrounded by all these Greek gods. <laughs> so, so it's really strange, but uh, we're, we're going to venture into that a little bit uh, in a few weeks. But the thing with this Baphomet thing, is is uh, I mean I know Im- immediately Christians are up in arms. That is what that is what they want from you. <laughs> that is what they're exactly. That's what they're exactly. after. There, this is not. No one is worshiping Baphomet. By the way, no one ever has worshipped Baphomet, which is an interesting thing. Uh, uh, Baphomet, the origin of that name. This is not some ancient god that goes all the way back. This is a name that came out of the Templar Inquisition by the French. Uh, they were torturing these Templars to death, trying to find out what their paganism was all about because they were so secretive. <laughs> and they were torturing them, and this word bafflement came out in the middle of their confession. Now, the French transli- uh, transliteration of that confession gave us that word bafflement. But technically, if you really examine what was being said, it's more than likely what the people, what the Templar was saying was Muhammad. But because of the transliteration of that name, Muhammad, Baphomet, it became this this other name. And it always Uh. intrigued everybody. They were like, what is this Baphomet? We've never heard of this God. (laughs) Right. So... Uh, it just kind of hung there in the realm of mystery until uh, Eliaphas uh, Levi, who was a, a cultist Satanist from the mid-1800s, was putting together his uh, demonic list of, of, a list of all the demons. And he had this word, Baphomet, but he didn't know what to do with it. So he created this drawing of a man with a goat head Right. Uh, and he put the pin the pentagram on his forehead and put the caduceus in his lap. I mean, he, he came up with that image. So this thing that they're that they're erecting in Detroit 
is a figment of this guy's imagination. It's not even a real, like no one worships this thing. <laughs> it's just there to make Christians mad. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Exactly. Well, okay. Well, let's let's just play that thought out a little further. Would you say that it's there to accuse ah, Christians? Ha, ha. Yes. And uh, well, like I mean, kind of like what I said earlier, just accuse Christians of perhaps not taking their faith seriously. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, how 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 like we we have an idea of how serious we are. You know, whenever we see the, uh, you know, I hate to say, but the, you know, the Christian flag flying over the American flag, as we heard in the news recently, <laughs> right? Uh, all this, this whole debacle, really, and like we know how serious we are, but what do we do when we find, or when we at least think of the idea of someone else being just as serious, but to a different God? Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, it, like I said, it's. It's 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 those guys calling us on our stuff. Right, right. So, and and so yeah, I, I think that Christians shouldn't give them what they want. I mean, this, oh, definitely not. Yeah, they're wanting a fight, and the thing is, be passive about it. This thing is not gonna. I'm mean, just let it go. <laughs> but give it a couple years, it'll be fine. <laughs> Everyone will be laughing about what that crazy thing is on the lawn up there. <laughs> yeah, what? Who is that guy? <laughs> yeah, what is that all about? So anyway, well, let's listen. Let, let, let's see if our, our old buddy is going to call in on us. So I have to preface this by saying Jeremiah filled up the voicemail about the last show. <laughs> A couple of times, so let's 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 hear what what uh, what he has to say about hell and such. Hey, Theonauts, this is Jeremiah. I'm calling in because I just listened to probably one of the greatest episodes ever on the debate of hell, and I have some <laughs> rebuttals, maybe arguments. Uh, Michael might not like me a lot after this, but uh, let's see if I can form a coherent rebuttals to, uh, to a couple of things that I just I thought were interesting. The first one is this. Michael leaned a lot uh, heavily on the verbiage or the use of the words like destroy, uh, cut off, uh, burn away. Um, these are finite words, and he's absolutely right. But I would remind him that... that uh, in the Old Testament, God uses the, the finite word um, destroy, referring to the earth, when he's talking about the flood. Um, that's just one example of many of the finite words that God uses. Now, let me ask you a question. Was the world actually fully destroyed, or was it renewed, or I don't, I don't know. The earth, as they knew it, was destroyed. Um, <laughs> the fi- again, finite words to describe something uh, completely different. Uh, the world was not destroyed. He didn't have to go back and recreate it. Another good example of that would be apocryphal uh, verbiage, uh, such as, uh, let's see, when Daniel is um, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by the hand of, um, I forget who, 
No, I'm talking about the destruction of maybe East Babylon by the hand of uh, um, the next people that take over. Anyways, he uses words like uh, the 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 moon will be or the sun will be blotted out of the sky, the the stars will fall from the sky. All these different huge, crazy words that that suggest that the world is just going to be completely, totally destroyed. Yet that didn't happen. It was apocryphal literature. These were metaphors, and we need to take metaphors to try to understand spiritual things. And that brings me to my second point. We have to look at metaphors to, to look at spiritual things. The reason that Jesus used uh, Gehenna in the intertestamental period to refer to hell, to describe hell, is because it was the best thing that he had to go off. Um, so... For instance, Michael said, well, you know, Gehenna, they said the fire will not be quenched until it destroys everything. Now, today, Gehenna, the fire is quenched. Well, yeah, because we're in a finite world. Jesus is trying to use finite things to describe the infinite. And there's no way that he can just go, well, this thing is going to burn forever and forever and forever. <laughs> so he got caught up, cut off for the first time. <laughs> For the first time. Yeah, so, so did you listen to the show, Brendan? You you said you told me you listened to it a couple times. Twice. Right? Yes. <laughs> well, because no, it was a very dense I mean it is a very dense topic and I wanted to make sure that I got everything. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> oh no wait, next question. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I and and I think uh uh you know, part of the big debate was these words about destroy, destruction, you know, um, what do they mean? Jeremiah makes the point that those words are used in a finite way in the scriptures, just, you know. Um, so, I mean, I can, I can, I can see that, that, uh, that argument. As, as I said in the last show, um, I'm not overly passionate one way or the other. Um, on this, I can see arguments on on both sides. I chose to to give Michael the best run for his money that I could. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, let, let's hear what what uh, Jeremiah's continuing thoughts here. Okay, uh, so I got cut off, which tells me that I'm talking way too much. But I'll uh, I'll continue going because this is important to me. So maybe you'll have enough time to to play it. Okay. So basically what I was saying was he uses the the, uh, the finite world to describe the infinite uh, because that's all he has to go off of to show, show his, uh, his, his people. Let me uh, give you another example. Let's say uh, um, whenever Jesus says the, the mustard seed is the smallest seed in all the earth, do we have to take that so literally that, we, that it means that that's the smallest no, we don't. We we take that as a figurative speech. And in the same way, we have to be careful with figurative versus literal and scriptural. And we have to understand physical versus spiritual meanings. Um, so I absolutely believe that when Jesus is trying to point to that, what he's saying is, dude, this thing is all-consuming. It continues to consume and never stops. Okay, anyways, keep going here. Um he mentioned in the Old Testament, because there is a very big lack of anything about the afterlife in the Old Testament, he mentions that one of a lot of people take, in the traditionalist view, take the position that maybe it changed with the New Testament. In other words, that they were uh, basically um, destroyed and 
or or died, and then there was nothing. And then then after after Jesus, they they you know they they were well. For me, this is a real bummer. For what about the people who uh, didn't accept Christ after Christ? That basically means that they got a harsher punishment than those who were before Christ. And, and how does that make God's character any better? Um, and that's what it all boils down to for me. I, I think that we as humans try to put God in a way that we can understand him and try to make him fair or try to make him not as harsh as we think he, he ought to be or not as harsh as we, you know, we think that he shouldn't be as harsh. As, as, uh, as he comes off being with this idea of infinite hell. But my, my question is, I guess I go back to Romans 9. Who are we? We're his creation. And, you know, he is, he is infinitely good. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And if he chooses to send people for all eternity to hell, that's his choice. Um, it, it's not about whether or not it's, in our eyes, a right choice. It's about whether or not it's it's his choice. And if it's his, why do we question it? It it, it goes back to that old saying that uh, it's not fair that any should perish. Well, it's not fair that any should come to understand Christ. And uh, and so, anyways, I have so many other arguments. Okay. Did he get cut off again? He got caught up. He got cut off again. <laughs> oh, Jeremiah, you should know your limitations. <laughs> so he has just one, one more, just where, one more, where he, one more thing where he kind of signs, uh, sews up his point here. So let's let's give him here we go. One more thing. I have so many other arguments to say, like uh, with Revelation or Spectrum being afraid to even discuss revelation we need to be pretty solid in that i think uh we need to 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 study scripture for what it says and what it doesn't say um but i understand this point in that and my biggest thing is we need to make sure that uh um we come to understanding of this because it does affect how we evangelize uh he made the point that um michael made the point that uh you know um Oh, no, I can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you made the point uh, that um, those, uh, you know, if 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 God were to condemn people to eternity hell, he must have made it very, very clear. I think that Romans 1 tells us how clear he made it, that we're without excuse. But not only that, I think that it tells us that we as Christians, how much more important is it that we go out and tell people about Jesus, if this is the this is the truth. It, it's got to be of the utmost importance. In fact, the only reason we're living now is to glorify God by telling other people about Him, uh, so that they can come to to a knowledge and a saving grace of who He is. And so, um, that's my thoughts. Sorry, it took three voicemails. Uh, God bless you. Go Sooners and go see an Bye. <laughs> go Sooners. <laughs> you know, he says he's sorry for leaving three voicemails. I don't think he's sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he's sorry at all. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> it didn't sound sorry. Let me tell you that. Yeah, but I tell you, uh, um, it's 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 one of those topics that can uh, cause people to flare up. 
really? I had no idea. <laughs> no, uh, I, I really, I do agree with Jeremiah though, uh, on God and, and Jesus himself using, using metaphors. Yes. Uh, you know, using, using finite metaphors to better explain, or, or at least to better deepen the understanding of, of infinite realms mm-hmm. of, of how things will work in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, you know, once the, once that veil's lifted, right. You know, it, you know, and kind of, uh, what Michael alluded to in the last episode was, uh, you know, what will the kingdom of heaven be like? What will it be like? And it's, I, you know, I, I do agree with the notion that Jesus used metaphors to explain that. Uh, me, I'm still, and you know, we, you know, we, we talked about it just before this show. You know, it's not a salvation issue, right? Uh, how, however, I think Jeremiah brought up another good point. It, our understanding of this will, it will affect our evangelism. R- correct. You know, and but there are several and, ways to evangelize. Well, I, well, I was just about to get to that, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, yeah, there there are plenty of ways to evangelize, and uh, and I and I think what the what it's going to boil down to in that regard is how much how much love do you have for your brother mm-hmm. or your sister or your fellow man? Do you love them enough to tell them of the? of the dangers of hell or do you love them enough to tell them of the, of the, you know, the everlasting love of God, uh, as opposed to the everlasting, uh, the, or the fire that cannot be quenched. Right. Well, the consequences, the consequences are eternal one way or the other. Yeah. And that's, so that's why it does. Well, that's why it doesn't really affect my evangelism, uh, at all. Really, because the consequences right. are eternal, whether you believe in total consumption by the flames or whether you believe the, the flames continue to torment forever. There, to me, it is still a it, it is still salvation that we're trying to, to bring. Right. Yeah, we got to we got to be like Paul, um, you know, when he went in. I love how in. In his letter to the Romans, uh, you know, he was it was very, very outlined and very uh, systematic. Mm-hmm. And then you get to then you get to Corinthians, and he's like, "Look, I tried to be fancy with my words and fancy with my understanding, but that just it did not end well. <laughs> so, I all I'm going to do now is preach Christ crucified, right." And that's and that's really what I think all evangelism should boil down to is preaching Christ crucified and of course Christ resurrected because that's where our hope is. Yeah, I mean theology so, is great, but theology isn't the saving factor. Right. So exactly. So there there is you know there is a clean uh, message. There is a very clear cut message that is the gospel, the good news, and and we can debate all this other stuff. You know, till we're blue in the face. I honestly think the answer to this particular question cannot be solved by pure scripture, because I think the scripture is ambiguous and it can be read two ways. It can. So the real answer lies in our philosophy, which is, you know, somewhat of uh, coincidental that that's what we're kind of talking about in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, 
it, it, it really boils down to, uh, I can't worship a God who would do X, Y, Z, or the mentality that, well, God is sovereign and I cannot think his way. His ways are not my ways. So yeah. let's not put ourselves in his shoes to determine what's just. Let him determine what's just. So you got kind of these two different philosophical uh, understandings of of Christendom. And I think whichever one you lean the, toward the most is going to lean toward how you understand what you're reading in the scriptures uh, yeah. concerning hell. So, But I don't want to belabor the point. We covered it really well last time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very well. So, so why don't we, what do you say we jump right in here? Yes, that's like yes. Okay, so what we're talking about today is who we are, our identity, and how is our identity, uh, how is it defined? So uh, this is your topic, Brendan. Uh, what exactly made you think of it? Uh, why are we talking about this? Uh, well, just uh, it, it's just my impression, and it's it's really my belief that a lot of I hate to, I hate to use buzzwords, David, <laughs> but a lot of hot button social issues will ultimately depend on the answer to this question. You know, where do we get our identity from? Okay. Uh, where, you know, where is identity bred in the heart or in the head? You know, it's a lot of these issues are going to depend on how people understand identity. Right. Uh, because, well, for example, if we ourselves choose our own identity then that makes us the arbiter of what's right and wrong you can be anything you want to be you, you can be <laughs> however if and this is uh this is going to be our focal point toward the end if however there is something outside of the self that determines the identity then we have to concede to that outer source Mm. to be the arbiter, to be the, the decider of right and wrong. And we have to we have to bow down to that decision. Right. You know, and it's you know, not gonna get into anything specific uh culturally or, you know, pop culturally. <laughs> but you know, it's uh like I keep saying, this is it's this whole conversation about identity in any facet is going to boil down to what is the origin of identity. Well, the gospel of Hollywood is basically you can be anything you want to be. Yeah. You can do anything you want to do. If you set your mind to it, nothing can get in your way. Don't listen to people of authority. If it's, if it's, if it's good for you, it's, it's good. And yeah. so I think that's kind of, of what we as Christians, we see something that's a little bigger than us. And so the question becomes, where does my identity come from? Is it me determining what's good? Uh, is it more, are we, is good and evil, is that morally ambiguous? 
I mean, is there this moral relativity that exists, uh, which most of what we're being taught in in uh, pop culture is telling us, yes, you know, that that morality, what's good for you isn't necessarily good for him, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think- yeah, I, I agree, yeah. Uh, oh, well, hold on. I agree that that is what is being... Uh, <laughs> I agree that that is the message. I'm not agreeing that it's right. <laughs> just, just so we're clear. Yeah. So this is going to be another debate, and uh, <laughs> Brendan's going to take the side. Of <laughs> no. No, it's not. No, sir. <laughs> no. I am. I am waving my sharpie pen at you furiously right now. This is not a debate. So you're not going to take the, the side of moral ambiguity, and I'm going to take the side of <laughs> absolute moral uh, compass. <laughs> oh, sure, sure not. Sure, we're sure not going to do that. Okay. How, okay. However, I do think we should preface this. Uh, you know, we're going to be. You know, we're going to draw up some some sources uh, that really I'm no professional on. Uh, we're going to be you know bringing in Sigmund Freud into this argument. We're going to be bringing. Um, so tell me, Brendan. Oh, I, I forgot the other idea. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Tell me about your mother. <sighs> She's hot. <laughs> wow. What is? <laughs> well, if I, I mean, that, that definitely Sigmund been Freud. reading Sigmund Freud, man. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay. No. Okay. Wow. So anyway, back to seriousness. <laughs> We're going. We're going to. Uh, we're going to be looking at Sigmund Freud's idea of identity just a little bit, and then uh, we'll look into another guy that I recently just found, David H. Kelsey. I haven't heard anything about him until I started looking up for this uh, subject. Uh, he wrote a book called "The Eccentric Existence," and you know we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that just to plant a seed. But ultimately, what we want to do is establish a. It's really a biblical foundation for at least at least for understanding how God sees us. Gotcha. You know, and that and I think that too will also affect how we, you know, how we spread the gospel. You know, how we understand ourselves, how we understand our place in uh, in in the certain order of things. You know, and it's gonna. Okay. Oh yeah, it's that. So. so- um, all right. Well, let's talk about this then. Um, how can we define? How can we define ourselves? Like, well, like, what is it that, that makes our identity? Well, okay. Well, that's an excellent question. I, I'm, you know, let's let's just start with let's let's just start with Imago Day. Imago. Imago. CC. What did you C-R-E-D. call me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, let's start with Imago Day, and really, I like uh, I like the way Saint Saint Francis puts this: "What you are in His sight, and He's saying God's sight." This is a quote from Saint Francis: "What you are in His sight is what you are, and nothing more." Hmm. Okay. So, so let's so let's look at this a little bit. Um, so, imago, imago Dei meaning the image of God in Greek. I mean, in yeah, Latin. Yeah, that's what. It, 
<clears throat> yeah, that's that's literally what it means. Okay. And and you know, scripturally, we get our foundation for that in Genesis, in the creation story. Uh, Genesis one, specifically verses twenty six and twenty seven. Then God said, "Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness." So they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth, over all the creatures that move on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really where we get this language of you know, being made in the image of God. Uh, what, what, are, what are some of your initial thoughts on that? David. Um, well, first thing is I'm curious about is is uh, is this re- is this referring to a physical uh, identity or is this a some other type of identity? Because um, I think why did God give us two arms, two legs, uh, two hands, ten fingers? You know that whole thing. Uh, a nose, ears. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we could have done it. We can see other. Uh, animals mentioned in this text, fish of the sea, etc., that don't have the same physical uh, attributes that we do. And so I often think, you know, we always think of God as this being this spirit or being, you know, this, this, uh, this nobody, just being a, you know, some sort of, of, of wisp of, of air. And uh, but I really think that he he must have some sort of physical identity that he that is similar to what he has given us. Um, so there, there's a physical side of that image to God. But at the same time, uh, what is it that separates us from the fish and the cattle and the birds and all these creatures that move on the earth? Um, it is the spirit that he breathed into our nostrils. So there has to be some weight behind that. And we have to give that some weight. I mean, as nice as a dog can be and as friendly as, you know, pets are and this sort of thing, they're no substitute for the spirit of man, you know, living, breathing, uh, sentient, uh, cognizant, um, intelligent life that we that we enjoy that I believe comes straight from this breath of God, uh, and uh, the 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 Greeks uh, term for that pneuma this the, this breath of air that came into uh, mankind. So I think that that <clears throat> we definitely have inherited uh, God's identity in this um, by default. So. What do we do with that? That's, you know, what we do with it then becomes more a question of our will and that versus his will. Aha, the opposition of wills. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, okay. Well, I do think you definitely hit it with uh, his spirit, the pneuma. And I, and I like the way Francis Bacon puts it. He says, they that deny a God destroy man's nobility for certainly man is of kin to the beasts in his body. And if he be not kin to God by his spirit, he is a base and ignoble creature. Mm. And, and really that's, 
that's where we get our uh, I, I think that is the image uh, of God is that or at least in our physical present bodies uh, it's it's that breath of life that that was breathed into us you know at whatever point you know mm. you know either conception or you know not to get too <laughs> technical about that um, but I, I do think that is where we at least regarding the image of God is his breath his spirit his life his well, I mean his his being like his own like you said his own identity being made manifest in us mm-hmm. but then we uh, we fall you know we fall down yep if you want to you know get back to the the uh, creation story you've got uh, Genesis 3 uh, and we'll actually get just to a specific verse in that when we get to Sigmund Freud okay but it, it talks about uh, you know, people just wanting to do their own thing. And, and that's, and that, you know, that's something about time on this earth. I think, uh, it's almost like this is some parts of it is a, is a practice round. Right. You know, cause you know, we're, you know, we're while, you know, while we're here doing God's work, you know, sometimes we will, we will mess up. That's just, I mean, that's well, and it's, I'll, I'll go ahead. Well, I was going to say is, uh, like when we look at Genesis three, there's an intention there of sorts that I mean we often think of it as as disobedience, but at the same time, there was this longing to be more like God, which is once again we're made in His image, and our natural draw is to be like the one we serve, to be to become who it is that we serve. And so it was only natural that the serpent knew exactly what words to tempt them with. If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. You're, you're going, you're going to be able to identify with him better. You're going to have a knowledge that you don't currently have that only he has. And so I think that, that that's going to come into play with us when we come to trying to determine our identity. We're always seeking for, this enlightenment, right? I mean, even in cultures that aren't uh, that aren't serving the same God we do, uh, Buddhist and whatever, they're searching for enlightenment, and so there is this this striving to improve their identity uh, by becoming closer to deity. Yes. Okay. And actually, you know, this is a good time just to go ahead and bring that verse up. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, that its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom. She wanted Mm. the wisdom it would give her. Mm -hmm. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. You know, it's, it's almost like they both understood they understood the reward and the good thing they would get, or what they at least what they thought would be the good thing. You know, more wisdom. Right. Who doesn't want more wisdom? Mm-hmm. Well, we all want more wisdom. They saw that, but the, it's almost like they didn't understand the repercussions of it. Right. But, but and again, isn't that like all of us? 
Exactly. Well, even you know, look at look at someone who's been told that they've got uh, lung cancer, and or, or something or, or um, emphysema or whatever, and and the doctor says you got you got to quit smoking, dude. If you want to live, you need to quit smoking. But yet, you see those people that have been told that day in day out, where they're still smoking. But and wh- so why is that? They they know the consequences. They know they know what the end result of this will be, but that, that need of gratification, self-gratification overrides the logical side of things. And I think that that's part of, of what we see here. There was this need to be like God, this need to be, to, to, to have more wisdom. And that superseded the consequences. Uh, And all they needed was that little push from Satan saying, you won't die. You know, to just just to send them over the edge. <clears throat> I, I got you, and and here's a and here's a question I just thought of. Could it be that they were trying that Adam and Eve, you know, when you know while Satan was whispering this stuff in their ear, could it be that they they thought they were just trying to better themselves, uh, and in effect change their identity mm. because they were already made in God's image? How you know, how much more noble can you be Right. as, as, as a creation, you know, if, if God is the, is the potter and we are the clay, how noble of the clay to be made in the image of the potter. Mm. However, you know, the clay, you know, <laughs> and I think free will factors into it. Right. Where we can, we have the, we're, we're presented with the choice. Okay. Well, we can either listen and obey and follow what our creator said, or, we can try to better understand it without him and on our own merits. Right. Which, and you know that honestly, that goes into, uh, into a line of individuality to where, to where we don't have to depend on what God says. We want to figure out stuff for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's a big selling point in the, in the pop it culture. Is. Everyone wants to say, you know, don't be a robot. Don't be a drone. Don't, don't follow the masses. Uh, b- yeah. be your own thing. Do you do your own thing? Um, and, you know, it, it's like, don't be, a, the, you know, they would consider following God the equivalent of being a lemming, you know, and the, you're just following, yeah. you're just following blindly. Uh, right. Without, without the understanding of grace, faith, and, and salvation involved, you know, they're, they're missing that part of it. Yeah. No, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, do you think there's a certain reason why? Uh, the Bible itself, the scripture itself begins with uh, not only the, the founding of, of the creation and then immediately shows how we messed it up. Do you think there's anything to that? Because a lot of the years of the, of the Israelites in the old Testament, it's like they're, they're in the aftermath of the fall. Mm. Do you, I mean, do you think there's anything to that? Oh, definitely. Because you've got, well, even when Paul is telling Timothy about how uh, the scriptures are good, and he's, of course, referring to the Old Testament when he's writing Timothy, and he says the scriptures are, are profitable for, uh, for learning and for teaching and for reproving and all these things um, that they're inspired for that. Uh, he's, he goes on to say that these are, these are examples given to us. 
for our learning and and that sort of thing. So, yes, seeing that story and seeing uh, that pride and that, I mean, we see it repeated over and over again, uh, Tower of Babel, you know, this pride that drives man to try and reach up to the heavens and be like God and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and the results of that, you know, ultimately what the, what the, the, the punishment of that is. Um, so I do think that, yes, there is an implication here about our nature versus our will. And which one defines identity? Hmm. <laughs> or, or is it a, is it really a fluid mixture of both? Because, I mean, I like, I mean, like we said, identity can change over time. Right. You know, given uh, given certain experiences, given certain changes in the will. Um, however, uh, if we just want to get down back to you know, being as part of the creation, being made in the image of God, but fallen from that image, fallen from that grace. Uh, we, you know, we, we see in Jeremiah, you know, when he's, when he's doing his preaching thing and actually right before uh, the passage about the potter and the clay, he says in Jeremiah 17 verses nine and 10, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things mm-hmm. and desperately wicked. Right. Who really knows how bad it is? <laughs> you know? Right. And then, but then, here's that, and this, this, this shouldn't be something that's good. This, this is what scares me. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. Mm. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. And that's really, I, I don't know. You could say that that is the whole of the old Testament, right? Of, of God saying, well, look, this is what you deserve because, and this is what I told you in the beginning. This is what, this is what will happen. You know, you will surely die. Well, okay. I told you that. And <laughs> this is, this is what you deserve. And it's almost kind of a, it's almost kind of bleak. However, the Israelite people had the hope of a Messiah, right? Uh, and and you know as do we. Uh, so before we get into that, into this new identity that we have offered through the Messiah, through through who we call Jesus, right? Uh, before we, let's get let's get into a little bit more of this depravity. And who better else to exemplify depravity than Sigmund Freud? <laughs> uh, you know, and okay, and I will preface this with: I am not a again. I am not a professional Freudian. I, I'm not a professional Freudian. <laughs> I'm a. I'm. I may be an amateur Pink Floydian, but I'm not a professional Sigmund Freudian. And. Uh, you know, my experience in studying Sigmund Freud actually came through in a college course that I took at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. Uh-huh. But it wasn't just Sigmund Freud. It was a compare and contrast class uh, where we compared Sigmund Freud to C.S. Lewis. Oh, wow. For, for the whole class. And it was actually really cool. That sounds cool. Uh, they, you know, they both, they, they started as believers, you know, 
bunny quotes. They started as believers in the beginning, mm-hmm. and then uh, early childhood drama. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think he lost uh, one of his parents, and Sigmund Freud, he lost both of. I don't know. You know, early childhood drama steered them away from the faith. Right. Uh, and of course, the main difference is C.S. Lewis found his faith again, and you know it was restored. Whereas Sigmund Freud, not so much. Right. Uh, however, I think uh, Sigmund's – I don't want to call him Sigmund. I don't know him by his first name. <laughs> you know, Siggy. Uh, yes. <laughs> Siggy. Yeah. Um, Siggy Stardust and the Spider. <laughs> no. Um, I, I think he's got something to say about, uh, about identity – Oh, here, let's just, he, he sets it up in a, in a little structure. Yeah. Uh, and this is just, you know, of the self. He sets it up in the structure of the id, the ego, and the superego. Okay. You know, he, he's got the id, the I, D, which is, oh, which is really funny because those are the first two letters of the word identity. Correct. And it's, uh, it's almost like he's suggesting just by the name. Uh, and, and really, just again, this uh, something else. Sigmund Freud did not call these things the id, the ego, and the superego. Uh, he called them in their German phrases, and it was actually his first translator that you know gave these terms. There are certain Latinized words, right? Okay, or Lat- Latinized forms. Uh, but id, uh, and just to quote Mr. Freud, are you going to do it in your best uh, German accent? No, no, I can't. I have no German <laughs> accent. If I Ron of the Red Oaks would love that. Oh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sure Ron would. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, okay. Too many jokes. Too many jokes. Okay. Uh, he says that the id is the dark, inaccessible part of our personality. Mm-hmm. What little we know of it, we have learned from our study of the dream work and how, and of the construction of neurotic symptoms, and that, and most of that is a negative character and can only be described as a contrast to the ego, which we'll get to in a second. We approach the id with analogies. We call it a chaos, a cauldron full of seething excitations it is filled with energy reaching it from the instincts but has no organization produces no collective will but only a striving to bring about the satisfaction of the instinctual needs subject to the observance of the pleasure principle wow and what i know know, right it's a lot of five dollar words yeah a cauldron full of seething excitations. Yeah, I, know, I know, right? How creative can you be? <laughs> uh, basically, what he's saying is that the id are or the id the id is our our basic desires. Mm-hmm. Our basic uh, uh, Sigmund Freud goes into lust, aggression, and really focuses on those two. As being as being the core of self fulfillment, exactly self fulfillment. With the id and with only the id, you have. Oh, it's it's your basic instincts, right? 
it's your it's your basis. It's your least noble self actualization. You know, this is what you want to do for yourself. No altruism. Complete. No out. Yeah, nothing for other people. All for yourself at at whatever cost. Right. What keeps that in check, according to according to Mr. Freud, is the ego. The ego attempts to mediate between the id and reality. Because so you can't live constantly consuming. Exactly. So you yes. have so you have to 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 throttle that somewhere. Right, and it's uh, it's the ego acts as like a uh, as a buffer between the id, the selfish desires, and reality. He says that the ego is part of the id, which has been modified by the direct influence of the external world. The ego represents what may be called reason and common sense, Mm -hmm. in contrast to the id, which contains the passions. In its relation to the id, it is like man on horseback, who has to hold in check the superior strength of a horse. Mm. With this difference, that the rider tries to do so with his own strength while the ego uses borrowed forces. Gotcha. So it's, uh, and I kind of like that image, you know, you've got man, you know, he says man riding on horseback. Obviously, you know, we would, we would identify the man as the stronger, at least the stronger willed being, Mm -hmm. even not necessarily physically stronger, but the stronger willed being who is able to, you know, do what he was told to in the garden, be a good steward of mankind and or of uh, the creatures. And <clears throat> even though the horse is ultimately physically stronger, he can still be controlled by the human. Yeah. And that image is even exemplified whenever you take it to the aspect of what is it like when you first break a horse, a wild horse? You know, I mean, the horse does not want to be controlled. He does not want to be ridden. (laughs) And he's going to do his best to throw you on the ground. Right. And so, yeah, if if the id is left unchecked, it becomes very hard to control. Yeah, and it uh, it becomes, and really it becomes dangerous. Because if it's it's left, I mean, if it's left in a world where... uh, it can go unchecked without hurting anybody, then, you know, who's to say what, but if it's in a place where, uh, there is interaction with other beings Mm -hmm. with other, for example, with other humans, uh, then it, then it gets dangerous. And we obviously know, you know, we, I, I want to say that humans could have figured this out without the Bible and without God. Yeah. But you know, it's hard, it's hard to say that or not, but (laughs) Uh, well, that's what uh, Freud would would say. Is well, that, that's what he would suggest. This yeah. uh, he would suggest a a world of coexistence where people do keep their ids in check if they're going to cohabitate with other people. Mm-hmm. But then again, he would just point to you know murderers and thieves and uh, rapists who who don't let their ids who who, who what he, I guess what he would say do not control their ids. And you know, let, let them run wild. Mm-hmm. And we and we obviously see the implications of that. Now, the ego. Getting back to the ego. Yeah. The ego serves three masters, three severe masters: the external world, 
the super ego, which we'll get to in a second, and the id. And uh, it's it's interesting how he lists the super ego and the ego. Those are part of the self, of the one individual self. But then he says another master is the external world, the reality. Right. Uh, anyway, going on, uh, its task is to find a balance. And this isn't quoting anymore. Uh, this, is, this is just Wikipedia. This is all on Wikipedia. The information is out there, y'all. Yeah. Uh, it's the ego's task is to find balance between the primitive drives and reality while satisfying the id and the superego. Its main concern is with the individual safety and allows some of the id's desires to be expressed, but only when consequences of these actions are marginal. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And yeah. <laughs> getting back to uh, quoting Freud, Thus, the ego, driven by the id, confined by the superego, and repulsed by reality, struggles in bringing about harmony among the forces and influences working in and upon it. So he's almost saying like the, like the ego is always in a type of distress, trying to, you know, trying to it's balance. fighting. Yeah, it's it's always fighting. It's always it's always fighting to keep keep the id in check, and then keep the super ego, uh, you know, I mean, really off its back. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, uh, and let's just get into the super ego, you know, getting back to the image of the of the rider on horseback. You've got the horse, that's the id. You've got the ego, that is, uh, you know, the rider on the horseback, and then the super ego. Is is kind of like an instructor telling the writer how to do his job. Oh, uh, okay. It's that outer influence. Um, it's like the racetrack or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, here, let's just let, let's let's hear what uh, what Pink Freud has to say about it. <laughs> um, special psychical. It is a special psychical agency which performs the task of seeing that the narcissistic satisfaction from the ego ideal is ensured. What we call our conscience. Ah. Now, see, now, you know, we as Christians, we understand conscience in a different way, but we, but let's keep going. Okay. Uh, the superego can be thought, can be thought of as a type of conscience that punishes the misbehavior, that punishes misbehavior with feelings of guilt. For example, having extramarital affairs. Right. Oh, where did my notes go? Yeah. Well, where did my, well, I guess that's all I had on the superego. <laughs> well, but I see a, go ahead. Go ahead. I see a little bit of a flaw in, in this logic. But, but, I, I do too, but go ahead there, <laughs> sir. Well, one, one big flaw is this. Um, this superego is not rigid. It can it, it it is it it can be bent, it can be uh, stretched. Um, for example, if you're relying on conscience to direct you, if you do the same thing long enough, your conscience will start to wear thin. It'll start to to uh, to callous over, and so then it doesn't affect your conscience anymore, and that. It, that super ego then would stretch to a larger place 
to where, okay, well, that no longer bothers my conscience, so I can continue to do this. And so it's like you're always testing the boundary, if that makes sense, of, of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable actions. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, I, okay, so I don't, I obviously don't have those notes, but maybe it's a sign that I should just stop quoting Freud and just get on with it. Uh, but Freud, uh, he compared the the superego to the father figure. And if you know anything about Freud and his relationship with his father, you know that it's it's just not good. Freud saw his father as a uh, as a, I, I guess as a monstrous man uh, who had his own rules and tried to be his, and tried to be his own arbiter, right. and then also also tried to be uh, Siggy's arbiter. However, Siggy didn't want anything to do with it. Well, see, and that can have a lot to do with your identity. Is if you if you don't understand what a love of a father is, if you don't have that. Uh, then you're missing on a big part of your identification. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're talking about talking about identity and the self being that source. I think we're coming to the conclusion that it takes something outside of the self to give us that identity. And I think, you know, while we're on this, uh, this talk about father figures, uh, we should bring in uh, James Henslin, whose textbook I just happen to have right here. <laughs> How <laughs> and, convenient! Uh, I know, right? <laughs> uh, you know, he and he, you know, it just it's it was basically just an intro to sociology. Uh, you know, talking about how society affects our lives, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he says that it's the it's a first it's the family group that gives us our basic orientation of life. Mm. He says, you know, later we'll find other groups like friends. Uh, we will find more intimacy and the additional sense of belonging. And he calls these groups the primary groups uh, because they provide intimate face-to-face interaction. They give us identity, ah. a feeling of who we are. So relationship has a lot to do with how you identify yourself. Yeah, and and honestly, I I think, you know, I'm not going to pit Mr. Henslin against the great Sigmund Freud, but I think what Freud misses is that it does take an outer outer source, Mm -hmm. something outside of the self, to to define identity. And if you look at at Freud's examination, he's really running off of if man is left to his own, uh, his own desires and his own devices, this is where it's going to go. That's kind of what he's saying. He's, he's not even really leaning on any outside forces aside from what the ego does in the natural realm of reality of the people that he comes in contact with. So, but, but it's like, um, and all that is basically saying is do no harm. That's kind of what he's saying the ego does, is prevents, uh, prevents you from harming others. It, it tries to keep the peace. Correct. Uh, yeah. So, But now let's take that into reality. Let's step away from Freud for a second and look at history. Adolf Hitler. 
<laughs> where where's the man's ego super ego uh, in a different direction i mean it's not it didn't it didn't work um you know what about napoleon uh alexander the great uh, i mean we could go on and on and on with with quote unquote great men of history who have not exemplified what freud gave us um in that their ego was bent or their super ego was bent in that they did not see the destruction of 6 million Jews as a, a negative impact on society. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where normally that's kind of a bad thing. <laughs> right. Um, so if we, if we say, okay, well, this is our identity as humans, like if left to our own device, and this is uh, then we the best we can hope for is an, is an ego to control us, and that ego might not necessarily do its job. Um, how do we how do we get around this? And I think you and I can both attest to uh, a relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ our Savior. Um, yeah. So as a Christian, there's this change in identity. So it's like no matter what you were, you have now become something different. You you have become a new, new creation, creature, right? <laughs> a new creature. Yes. To uh, to quote Brother Paul, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm turning as I'm speaking uh, to quote Brother Paul, uh, chapter five, verse seventeen. I believe we can all really quote uh, it from heart. Second Corinthians. Because, Second Corinthians, yes. Second yes. Corinthians, uh, five seventeen. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Behold, the old life is gone; a new life has begun. And that that new life, it's almost like it. It's basically a new identity. Mm-hmm. One, you know, we're. Oh, go ahead. I was just fixing to say one that is not uh, self-focused like on the id, but is instead outwardly focused onto others. Well, it's I mean, it, it's one that, for you know, listening to, to Freud speak, it's almost like he's not even acknowledging that there are other people on this planet. Correct. You know, it just, it sounds like he's, you know, he's looking out and he wants us to look out for the self Mm -hmm. and for the, you know, for the one individual. And, you know, it could be, you know, it could be a a romantic idea. Uh, You know, if we just keep ourselves in check, then society will get along. Right. Right. You know, that, but it just, uh, you know, he stopped short and, you know, you know, and, you know, that may be fine for people. For or for other people, but for Christians, it you know that can't be the end all, right? Because you know, like I said, you know, who better to exemplify depravity than Sigmund Freud? Uh, but but really, what he's saying, it's got some truth to it, because you know what is you know what does Paul say in Romans three twenty three? All have sinned mm-hmm. and fallen short of the glory of God, and to and we compare that to Sigmund Freud and. All have, all have given over to the less, to the less noble instincts of the id, mm-hmm. and all have you know desired and sought wisdom, 
that was pleasing to the eye, uh, that it, it appealed to the lust of the flesh. We have all, you know, done that. And, you know, where Freud would say, oh, well, you're just, you know, catering to the id. And the only reason you feel guilty is because the superego is hovering over you. Right. Uh, like, a, like a mad father waving his finger. But we as Christians, we can't go there because, I mean, in a sense, the superego could kind of represent the Holy Spirit living within us. Yes. Yeah, that actually gets into, um, into one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, is 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 the Holy Spirit because I think the Holy Spirit has a whole lot to do with our 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 regenerated identity and and in who who we are. Um, in First Corinthians six verses nineteen through twenty, uh, in the ESV says, "Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own." For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Um, so he calls our body this temple and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Um, and of course, if this if this Holy Spirit, this part of the Godhead, is internalized, if it's inside of us, then it then everything changes now. Um Yes, those other things still exist. Our id, our ego, all these things defined by Freud, they exist, but there is a supersedent in in place. Uh, the, I guess the, the super ego is replaced. <laughs> or, or, or there's a, there's an already existing uh, code of morality. Yes, and all an absolute truth. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it is. There's already an absolute truth that is not changed by time, that is not changed by experiences it may or may not have had in the past. It is not changed by the subjectivity of its of its selfish free will. Mm-hmm. That absolute truth, what we you know what we call God, it's actually looking out for our safety. Right. And it's it's kind of setting the example right there at the beginning. It's already looking out for something outside of itself. So should we. Mm-hmm. And I want to look at this um, this thing that God started in Deuteronomy, um, and I don't think it really sunk into people uh, because they were so focused on His law. Um, but in the midst of all that, th- there is this thing that the Jews call the Shema uh, that they recite. Um, Regularly, they they put it in scrolls and and put it in their doorposts because they misread it where it says, keep these things on your your doorpost when you go in and when you come out. And and, and they they literalize that instead of spiritualizing it and making it part of them. Um, But the Shema is in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, and Jesus actually calls this the greatest command. And that, that command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Uh, now, that word strength is a confusing word in the Hebrew. It's it basically uh, a mayod, and it means, literally, it means very, <laughs> like, like very much. <laughs> with all your very? Yeah, with all your very. <laughs> 
so it's hard to it's hard to get your head around the translation of it. So uh, wow, why couldn't they just wrote written the Bible in English in the beginning? It made a whole lot easier. <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, <laughs> so, but so this this word is actually uh, this when Jesus quotes this as the greatest command, depending on which which version you read or which uh, gospel you're in, uh, Mark renders it. Uh, he splits that word mayad into two English thoughts or into two Greek thoughts that uh, that give it depth. Mark in twelve thirty. Uh, uh, Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So strength being part of it, like the English word strength still being there, but it also encompasses this concept of your mind as well. Um, so I guess what I wanted to kind of look at was God is wanting our love for him to echo through all these different parts of us. And um, so each one of these things help define us as who, what our identity is. Um, we're, we're giving, if we, if we go to the Greek in this Mark verse, you have heart, which is cardia, which means the thoughts or intents of, of, of your, your, what your goals are and your feelings. So in essence, it's kind of like the superego in a way, um, but it is your emotional identity. That mm-hmm. is who your heart it defines you emotionally. Um, and, and then you've got this soul. Uh, he wants you to love him with all your soul. Your soul, soul is psyche. That's the same word we use for all this psychobabble. <laughs> right, yeah. The, the, that word psyche... Uh, basically is our spiritual identity. It's the spirit, our, our faith, our trust, our belief, all these things that make up our, our, our living soul. Um, he wants us to love, us with, uh, love him with all of that. Um, then he says, with all your mind, which is the Greek word, dianoia, um, which means your rational thoughts, your imaginations, your understandings, so, in other words, your studies, your intellectual side, your rationale. This mm-hmm. is your rational identity. Uh, um, and then, finally, he uses the word iskis, which means strength. It means force, ability, power. And this is your physical identity. So, and it's a well-rounded thing. So, it's not just, you know, whereas Freud is dividing this up into id and ego and superego, God divides it up into your thoughts and intents, your feelings, your spirit, your rationale, and your power, your, your, uh, your physical abilities. And what he's saying is, I'm going to turn all of that to me. That's, that's the goal, is when this change that we were just talking about this regeneration switches it all over to, to me. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, um, obviously our thoughts and intents and our feelings, our emotional identity. Um, if we want to look at it in terms of, he called us a temple of the Holy Spirit and we can go back and see how Solomon built the temple. 
there was a place in the very middle of the temple called the holy, uh, or not the the holy place, but sorry, there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies, the holy of holies, yeah. Right. So the uh, most holy, right? Not the most holy place, but the uh, the holy place is where um, the identity of Christ was symbolized through the showbread, through the light given by the menorah, by the altar of incense. All these things represent Christ, and they all purify. They all justify. The, those things are what cleanse the priest in order to give him access to the most holy place. Mm-hmm. And so this place could be corrupted, like Nadab and Abihu corrupted it when they brought in fire that wasn't part of it. I mean, they brought in something that corrupted it. So this is like our heart. This is the part of the temple that can be corrupted, that can be, um, that, that we, that is supposed to cleanse us, but it can be corrupt. And of course, what does God tell us? He says, I will take your heart of stone and remove it, and I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. Uh, Psalms 28, 7 says, my heart leaps for joy, and with my song, I praise him. So this is, this is an emotional response to God. Romans 15 and 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we need to let these things, these, these consecrated things in this place change our heart. It's kind of like our holy place. Um, mm-hmm. Then you have the soul, the psyche, that spirits, uh, the spiritual side of us, which is our faith, our trust, our belief, all these things. That is our holy of holies. That's where the spirit is. That's, that's where our, our Holy Spirit dwells with us. That's uh, where our energy and our source of power comes from. Um, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, familiar reading here, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your way acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So this is in place of Sigmund Freud's superego. This is the what directs your path, is, yeah. is, is this holy of holies that is within us, God himself dwelling in us. Uh, John 14 and 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So it's about trust. And once again, he keeps referring to the heart. Remember, that's the holy place. So it's like yeah. this is going to affect those other parts of your, of your existence. Uh, right. And it's going to have a positive effect on it. So don't let your heart be troubled. Believe. Believe in me. Uh, trust in me. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, cleansed by all those things in the holy place, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it's more about faith and what the joy that that gives us and the access to God's throne. Um, and then if we think about our mind, uh, remember mind and strength are kind of the same original Hebrew they both come from that same Hebrew word. The 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 meod. Yeah, yes. Yes. Meod. So you have yeah. mind and strength, which is if you think of the, the the temple of Solomon, there was to get into the holy place, you had to go through this entrance that had two pillars on each yeah. on each side. One of them was called Boaz, and the other one was called uh Jachin. And uh it's interesting when you look at the names 
and what they mean. Um, this, the mind, our rational thoughts, is our rational identity, how we identify ourselves with him rationally and in our understanding can, can tie into one of these pillars, uh, Jacob, which means he establishes. Uh, Romans 12 and 2 says, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, changing the way you think, changing the way you imagine things. Um, Isaiah 1 and 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Once again, this is about rational, rationalizing and, and understanding. Uh, Hebrews 10, 16, This is the covenant I will make with them after the t- that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. So again, the heart is included, but this is also talking about writing them in our minds. Uh, so that they're, they, they're recalled. And we mentioned this one earlier in Isaiah 55 and 8. My thoughts are completely different from yours, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Um, but that's our goal. We're trying to be like God. And we want our, so our thoughts are continually focused on him. And of course, Philippians 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, let me say one more thing as I close this letter. Fix your thoughts on what is good and honorable and right. Think about the things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So you have serving him and identifying through our thoughts. Uh, And then lastly, strength, uh, our force, our ability, our power. One of those other temple pillars was Boaz, uh, which means in his strength. Um, Philippians 4 verse 13 is a continual from the verse we just looked at. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And, and of course, Isaiah 40, we're familiar with this one. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Um, in Ephesians 6, telling us to get ready to put on this armor of God, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Um, so all these things are about identifying with God. And le- like our strength, his strength becomes our strength. His thoughts become our thoughts. Uh, his spirit becomes our spirit. And his heart becomes our heart. And these are the things that identify us as the way I see it as, as Christians is in these four major areas, if we can, you're always going to be missing out on part of it. You're constantly going to be to renew your mind, constantly going to be asking God, uh, give me a new heart and renew a right spirit within me. Same way that David pleaded in, in Psalms 51, um, so we're always going to have that that need, but but it's it's our our the change is what drives us in all four of these areas, and gives us, I believe, a spiritual identity. It's it's that um, that initial change that I mean it really shifts the the focus, what we would uh, what some might call the center. Mm-hmm. of our identity, it, it changes the focus of that center and it puts it on a completely different foundation. Correct. And, uh, it's a foundation that's outside of the self. Mm-hmm. 
and that's and like you know like I said earlier that's that's what God has been giving us the example for this whole time it's like he's he's putting faith in something outside of himself he's he's putting faith in us to you know to follow his will here on earth right to be stewards of creation to do as he says and in turn we're putting our faith in him to provide that power because it can't come from ourselves right. our our identity uh, let's just go down the checklist does it come from the self no because the self is uh all like jeremiah says it's a wicked and deceitful thing mm-hmm. uh, does it come from the group no because that group is com- comprised of individuals does it you know does it come from a community uh, no, because it, that community is comprised of individuals who suffer the same depravity that we do. And it's, uh, like you say, it's not rigid. It's not structured. It's not, it's not solid. Right. Therefore, all of human identity, you know, first being made in God's image, but then falling from that image immediately in the beginning, that is the identity of of all humankind, of mm. all mankind, of the whole human race. But it's in Christ that we have this new identity. And, you know, like I keep saying the phrase off-center or out-of-center, and that's, this is where I want to bring in uh, David H. Kelsey. He is, a, uh, he is a Lutheran professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. Uh, and this is just a simple, you know, a Bing, a Bing.com background check, you know, n- you know, not a sponsor. Um, <laughs> Making sure he oh, wasn't. Oh, no, he, so Satanist. he is a doctor. He he received his PhD from Yale. So he is, he, we can, we can say Dr. Kelsey. <laughs> uh, uh, he, in his book, Eccentric Existence, uh, really points to this idea of, our new identity in Christ being fi- being found outside of the self. And he uses the words eccentric uh, because it is a combination of the Greek, uh, ek, meaning out of, and kentron, meaning center. So eccentric literally means outside of the center or off center. And in a Christian context, that means that our new identity, like we've been harping on, comes from outside of the center of our of ourselves. Mm-hmm. In other words, the core of our new identity is not our natural and depraved self, but God himself, God as the other, God as the, the capital O right, other. Right. That, that's another philosophical thing with, uh, we, we, I know we talk about a lot on uh, FCC. I'm, you guys talk about it here a little bit. Uh, that, that identity is... It's really supposed to serve as a. It's it is supposed to serve. That's the key phrase, and what it serves as is what in what N.T. Wright calls the angled mirror. Mm. You know, not only are we reflecting God out into creation, but we're also reflecting creation back up to God. Right. It's a it's a three dimensional experience, um, and then you know we you know we talk about. Uh, this foundation of our own identities not being ourselves, but leaning on something better, on someone better. 
Uh, I like the way Dr. Richard Beck says it. Uh, Dr. Richard Beck, he's he's from Abilene Christian University. Uh, you may you may have actually, I know you've at least heard of Abilene. What's that? Ab- Abilene Christian University. Yes. Uh, it, it's in your neck of the woods, ain't it? It is in my, in my well, it's not, it's in Texas. But, well, it's, uh, it's in the state. But you yeah. know, Texas is uh, about as big as uh, most countries. About as about <laughs> as big as Alaska, about as big as Canada, <laughs> about as big as Africa, the seat of humanity. Yeah, uh, yeah Abilene's about yeah. six or seven hours away. So, Okay, so it's, um, you know, I don't think we can even do Tennessee in that round of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, what Dr. Beck says, he says the key behind this eccentric identity is coming to receive your life and the things in your life as a gift. Mm. And this experience of gift cultivated through the practices of gratitude, of doxological gratitude, reduces both our basic neurotic experiences of anxiety and scarcity, our worries about having enough and being enough, so much so that gratitude sits at the heart of this eccentric identity. And really, I mean, that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. We, we have, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Kelsey calls it the eccentric identity, but Dr. Rich, uh, Rich, Dr. Beck goes on to call it a Eucharistic oh. identity. Interesting. And it's in, and he chose that word because I mean Eucharistic or Eucharist is Thanksgiving. Means, it means Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. exactly. And he, you know, he believes, and I and I think I agree with him wholeheartedly that gratitude does sit at the heart of this new identity we have in Christ, because when we're faced with our own moral decisions, and when we're faced with um, what we rightly deserve, what God has promised. Uh, let me get back to Jeremiah real quick. Jeremiah or chapter <laughs> 17, <laughs> verse nine and 10. He'll love you for that. <laughs> he says, but I, the Lord search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Mm. Like I said earlier, that should scare people. Yeah. And it should scare us to the point where we have to ask, is there anything that can be done to save our souls? And when we, when we find that the foundation of that salvation is not within us, mm-hmm. we, and, and, we, and it's, it's offered as a gift. Well, it really is. And, and, that I, that really fits into this this Eucharistic idea, this Thanksgiving idea. Uh, regeneration is is built around that response. It's like I can do nothing for my salvation. It is a gift to me. My response to that is I will do everything I can. So it's like so it, it's like that changes who I am. Whenever someone gives you the most inconceivable gift possible, and it it the the response is an overwhelming thanksgiving that I mean someone saves your life, 
What do you like physical life here on earth? You feel indebted to them. I mean, it's not like you truly owe them anything, but you feel indebted to them and, and they will be lifelong friends, not because of who they are, uh, but because of your response. It changes your identity with that person uh, because of, of that deed. And that's what regeneration is built around this changing of the heart, changing of the spirit it is all built around Christ's sacrifice and how that the, the spirit uses that to flip us to where we are eccentric. We're a peculiar people. <laughs> you see what I yes. did there? <laughs> yes. I see what you did there. Very good, sir. Yeah. But uh, yeah, eccentric. Uh, I've always wanted to be eccentric anyway. So, well, obviously, uh, I, I think you qualify. I think I qualify. <laughs> I know Michael qualifies as eccentric. And <laughs> well, you know, in the in the in the associated sense, that eccentric just means just a little bit off, uh-huh. off center, a little, a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, off center. Uh, but really, I, I mean, it's a it's a very good way of explaining this new identity that we have in Christ. Yeah, it's wonderful. So it well, is. I think this has been a great, a great study, and I hope that it gives our listeners some fodder to to really do some uh, self examination because it, this study really is about a mirror. I mean, you you should look at yourself and see: Am I being? Am I identified? H- how am I yeah. identified? You know, am I identified by my own selfish wants and needs and and the id, as Sigmund Freud claims that I am, or Am I identified by that image of Christ looking back, uh, which is where we ultimately, as Christians, need to be identified in? Yeah. And uh, are, 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 is our identity eccentric? Is it out of the center? Um, and so, great, great study, Brendan. I really appreciate it. Hey, did you, uh, did you get the email I just sent you here a, a little bit ago? I I, I, I I haven't received the notification. <laughs> I, I said, are, are you are you trying to send me sneak messages <laughs> in the middle of a show? <laughs> yes, I, I, I sent you our closing script since you're Jeremiah for the day. Oh well, uh, I'm opening my inbox right now. <laughs> in like this very I aura. Because you know, as as it sits, I can't close the show. Hey, look, there's an email from, uh, from Hastings dot. Oh no. Okay. From David. Okay. There's David. Okay. No, I, I do not want that coupon for the long lost tale of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> hey, that's a good book. I, I, I haven't read it. Oh. I, I need to get on that. Okay. All it says is read this. Right. Is that, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like there, is there an attachment to this sir oh there should be uh, okay hold on okay uh, I, I hope you can still see me in the hangout because I closed that window oh that's cool uh, so give me a second <laughs> so this is like Alice in Wonderland you know you're yeah. not, you don't ask any questions <laughs> it's just just read this <laughs> read this and up oh, there it is okay so you see, Jeremiah's part is identified with his initials. I'm good. That's what you did there. <laughs> okay, hold on. It's loading. 
It's loading. Okay, I get. Oh, I get to act. Yes, I get to act as Jeremiah. And 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 we know that's what you do for a living. So we should be good, right? <laughs> Why, yes. All right. Well, let's do this thing. The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network. And you can ad-lib, by the way. I mean, I don't mind. Oh, I so, can? Yes, yes. You can yes. Im- improv this thing. So, yes. <laughs> but at the Great Commission Transmission Network, which I just love to say, we use new media and social networking to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more or to partner with us, visit us at gctnetwork.com. Subscribe to the newsletter there to stay up to date on all the latest from all our shows, including Brendan Taylor and Michael Hansen over at Finding Christ in Cinema. There are several ways to contact us and leave us feedback. Send us an email at theonauts.gctnetwork.com. <laughs> Call us on our voicemail line at 972-885-7270. And, but remember, don't fill it up the way Jeremiah did. Yeah, for real. Don't take out three emails just to say your point. (laughs) Listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio or your favorite podcast catcher. And don't forget to leave us comments there and rate us. (laughs) Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. Follow us on Instagram at Theonauts. That last part's you too, by the way. And don't forget <laughs> to tune in and explore the vast reaches of God's word with us. <laughs> okay, friend, and thanks for being here, brother. Hey, yeah, thanks for inviting me. All right, God bless you. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972 972- Eight eight five seven two seven zero. Love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your great commission. This is your great commission transmission at gctnetwork.com. This is your great commission transmission. This is your great commission transmission.